please pray with me. Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy will be upon us. Lord, indeed, your grace truly is wonderful. For it is through your grace we have status as children. We have hope in the forgiveness of our sins. And we have the destiny of eternal life with you and with your people. And Father, as we remember your grace, help us now to live in proper response to it. That we would live faithfully, that we would live obediently, that we would live with much joy and love and hope. Father, you know the struggles that we've had to endure during these past seven months. You know the trials, the tribulations, the sorrows, and the setbacks in which we've had to endure. And now, God, we pray that as we sit at your feet on this day, that you would speak and minister to your people. For you have promised that when two or more are gathered under the banner of your great name, that you would be present among us. And so, God, please be with us. Help us, minister to us, and bless us. We ask, O oh God, that you would now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Why do you do what you do the way you do it? What, why, way? What? There's always a what when it comes to the things that we do. Whether you're talking about the what of school, the what of work, the what of dating, the what of marriage, what have you. And then there's also why we do the things that we do. Why do we study? Why do we work? Why do we date? Why do we get married? Whether you realize it or not, all of us are driven by a why to the what that we do, which then leads us to the final thing, and that is the way we do the things that we do. The way we study, the way we work, the way we date, the way we marry. And it turns out the way is just as important as the what and the why, for without the way, we can never get to the what we want to do and satisfy the why we want to do it. Why do you do what you do the way you do it? Three questions that are so important for any human being to ask as they live in this life doing the various possible activities that this life has to offer. And those questions are apparently, especially, particularly relevant for Christians right now as we consider what we're doing at this present moment, which is worship. How's that? Well, I think it goes without saying that COVID-19 has truly hindered the church to do what it normally does the way we normally do it. And as a result, it has actually caused some Christians to go so far as to even ask, why therefore should we bother to do it at all? Some recent and yet discouraging studies have been coming out lately about how some Christians, in a moment of sobering honesty, confess that they have gotten so used to, so accustomed of not gathering together as the church, that the idea of temporary not gathering together is causing them to conclude of making it into a permanent decision. In other words, some Christians are just so ease and so comfortable and so used to of not gathering as the church to where when the church eventually resumes gathering, they won't. And the reason? Because they have forgotten the why. Why we are to worship as the gathered church. And so as your pastor and out of concern for you, we're going to begin a sermon series on what we do as the gathered church. We're going to talk about the what of the church, which is worship. And the way we're going to do that is looking at the way we do worship by looking at the various components of our liturgy, of our worship service, so that by understanding the what 
and the why, excuse me, the what and the way, we would have a compelling conviction of truly saying why we should and answering in the positive way that we should. So, with that in mind, we're going to kick off this series by looking at the first way that we approach our worship to God, and that is answering His call to worship. I want to talk to you today about the call to worship. And as we do, three things I want to share with you in today's message. First, we're talking about the universal call to worship. Then we're going to talk about the holy call to worship. And then we're going to end it with the church's call to worship. The universal call to worship, the holy call to worship, and then end it with the church's call to worship. Let's take a look at the first point, the universal call to worship. Read again with me, starting in verse 1 of our passage, where it reads as follows. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Okay, come on back. Now, just from a simple reading of these verses, it can really cause you to be somewhat taken aback, somewhat startled to what the psalmist is saying regarding the existence of God. And the reason why I say that is because it is so opposite, so contrary to how our culture views this concept of the existence of God. And to show you what I mean by that, consider this quote from a very famous, well-known atheist philosopher as he talks about this issue about the existence of God. This is Bertrand Russell. Listen to what he says, quote, the immense majority of intellectually eminent men disbelieve in the Christian religion, but they conceal the fact in public because they are afraid of losing their incomes. In other words, believing in God, according to Bertrand Russell, is not reasonable it is not rational it is it is not reasonable in any sort of fashion and any smart person that would actually claim that they do has ulterior motives they either want to have a respectable reputation or or they want to be able to get a certain kind of uh, opportunity or maybe they just want to date someone very attractive who happens to go to church but the bible would say that it's bertrand russell who has it backwards you know, funny thing is that if you read the Bible cover to cover, you will never once encounter an argument for the existence of God. You can look at it with all of your days and you will never find a singular argument for the existence of God. And the reason why you will never find that argument isn't because there weren't any atheists during the time when the Bible was written, for surely there were. But actually the reason is much more simpler. It's because from the Bible standpoint, such an argument would be a waste of breath. It would be a waste of ink on pages. It would be completely unnecessary. Because as far as the Bible is concerned, it is people like Bertrand Russell who are irrational. They're the ones who are unreasonable. Because for anyone to have the audacity to claim that God does not exist, when God's clear revelation of his existence is so blatantly obvious, so compellingly clear, it is that person who is so out of their minds, or in the words of Psalm 14, it is that person who is the fool. Consider again verse 1 and 2 of our passage. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The heavens, the Bible says, declares the existence of God. It shouts out to everyone everywhere that He is real. And notice also that the heavens declare something else besides the existence of God. Read verses 4 and 5 to see what I mean. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. 
You see that word in verse 4, the word tent? In the King James Version, it translates that same word as tabernacle. I prefer that word. You know why? Well, let me explain. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Christian vocabulary or Bible lingo, the tabernacle was basically a portable worship space. It was a portable temple during the time of the Exodus. You see, when Moses led the Jews out of bondage from slavery in Egypt, he took them out into the desert, and therefore they needed a place where they could give their sacrifices, where they could sing their praises to God. In other words, to have their worship service. Because it was in this tabernacle where God's very presence was localized out of all the earth. Now, for those of you who've attempted to read the Bible cover to cover, I am willing to bet that you started slowing down and eventually stopping somewhere between Exodus 25 to chapter Exodus 40. And the reason why is because those are the chapters where God gives some very intense, detailed instructions on how God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. Honestly, it's so tedious, it's so detailed that honestly, it's quite boring. But if you pay careful attention to how God commands Moses to build a tabernacle, you come to see an interesting pattern. God constructs the tabernacle in such a way that it parallels how God constructed or created all the world. That's right. And when you make that connection, you come to a startling realization. You come to understand why God created the world in the first place. It's for the very same reason why he created the tabernacle. It would be because that those who were either in the tabernacle or in the world would come to worship the true and living God. It turns out that the very first ever church building to ever exist was the world, thereby making the very first church members ever our very own Adam and Eve. This very idea explains, by the way, how some of the most staunch atheists will react to something in creation, whether it's a massively beautiful waterfall, a breathtaking panoramic view of the Grand Canyon, a, a set of mountain ranges that are just so astounding, and they'll react the same way a person would when they walk into some of the most breathtaking, majestic cathedrals of Europe. They will be filled with such awe and such reverence. You see, God created the world in such a way to provoke people to want to worship Him. Creation, in a sense, functions in the same way that a worship leader or a pastor functions at the beginning of a Sunday service. It is calling everyone, everywhere, to worship the true and living God. Now, with what I just said, however, don't take that and come to the wrong conclusion. Do not think that just because God created the world to be the very first ever church building, that therefore Christians gathering together in worship spaces is so unnecessary. And the reason why I point this out is because there are some misguided Christians who would actually say that gathering together in worship spaces, going to a church gathering, these are man-made traditions and they're just so unnecessary. They're just so unimportant. In fact, consider this quote from a particular misguided Christian as he says the following, quote, My church, it's the outdoors. I don't have to be in a sanctuary on a Sunday morning to worship God. All of my life is to be a worship to Him. I can worship God just as much as when I'm mountain biking with friends or as when I'm sitting in a pew singing a hymn. There are times when I'm outside lying on my back, looking up at the stars, and it does something for me that no church service has been able to do. End quote. Now, there are two reasons why what I just read to you, why that quote is so blatantly wrong. The first reason should be obvious. If it is the case that creation 
okay, was sufficient by itself to be a place of worship, God would not have commanded Moses to build a tabernacle in the first place. He could have just told Moses, hey, look, Mo, take my people into a beautiful panoramic scene somewhere in the Middle East and there, worship me. That is sufficient. That is a sufficient place for you to gather. Okay? If that was the case, God would have commanded Moses to do that, but he doesn't. He instead tells Moses to build a separate place for the specific purposes of gathered worship. The second reason why that quote just doesn't cut it is because if you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, you know that once they committed their very first sin, the original sin, all of creation became broken. All of the world became run down. It decayed. It became decrepit. And as a result, it can no longer properly function the way God originally designed it. I mean, it's comparable to a person going into an abandoned, run-down church building. He can go into the building and see vestiges of what its function originally was intended, but because it is now in a state of decay and decrepitness and brokenness, it clearly can no longer function to what it was originally designed for. It cannot be an adequate place of worship. And here's the thing, folks, when you do not make that connection, when you don't come to that understanding, you attempt to follow creation's call to worship God, ironically, you'll end up not worshiping God, but a false God. You'll end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. This is why, by the way, a lot of the ancient pagan religions their objects of worship were created things, whether you're talking about the sun, the moon, the stars, even animals. And before you kind of condescendingly like laugh at that with your all sophisticated superiority, thinking that such people are so stupid and so primitive, need I remind you that your money is a created thing. Your nice sports car is a created thing. All those nice technical gadgets that you have in your home that you love so much are created things. Your children, your wife are created things. Now you hear that and you're thinking to yourself, okay, where are you going with this, Pastor John? Well, let me explain by going to my next point, the holy call to worship. Skip down to the middle of our passage. We're starting in verse seven. We read, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Okay. Here, as the psalmist continues his discussion on the subject of worshiping God, he shifts his focus away from creation and now zeroes in on the law of God, God's law. And it's interesting. If you look at how he talks about God's law, it's very similar to how a man talks about a woman he's madly in love with. I mean, it, it's kind of like poetry. Uh, he's, he's kind of going something like, oh, how I love God's law. Let me count the ways. You make wise the simple. You enlighten the eyes. You revive the soul. Right? You rejoice the heart. And honestly, when most modern people read that, we can't help but to feel a little bit weird because let's be honest. When we think about the law of God, God's law, our reaction is not like this guy. We don't have this kind of sentimental, romanticized, serendipitous reaction to it. And as a result, we can't help but to wonder, are we missing something here? And the answer is yes, we are missing something. And you know what we're missing? We're missing God's holiness. Let me explain. See, even though we may not share the psalmist's reaction to God's law, we do share in his understanding as to the purpose of God's law. 
And do you know what the purpose of God's law is? It's to reveal God's holiness. I mean, look at how he refers to the law, how he describes it. He uses words like pure and perfect, which echoes what the Bible describes about God himself. God is pure. God is perfect because God is holy. Yeah, God is holy. Now, all of you Sunday school Christians, those of you who grew up going to church, you've heard that statement before. Am I right? Of course you have. God is holy. We've heard it countless of times. But what is so often the case is that we hear something so often thinking we know what it is, when in actuality we just simply know the statement, not really knowing what the statement is saying. And I think the concept or the statement of God being holy happens to fit into that category. We know the idea that God is holy, but we don't really understand what it means for God to be holy. And so to make sure we're on the same page, consider this explanation, this very insightful quote from Pastor Paul Ellis. He writes this, quote, holiness is avoiding sin. It's being set apart from the world and staying undefiled, or so we've been told. The problem with divining holiness like this is that it doesn't actually describe a God who is holy. God was holy long before there was any sin to avoid. He was unblemished before there were blemishes. So, what is holiness? Holiness means wholeness. To say that God is holy is to refer to the wholeness, fullness, beauty, and abundant life that overflows within the Godhead. God lacks nothing. He is unbroken, undamaged, unfallen, completely complete, and entire within himself. He is the indivisible one, wholly self-sufficient and the picture of perfection. Holiness is not one aspect of God's character. It is the whole package in glorious unity. What's he saying? Well, in a nutshell, he's saying that when the Bible says that God is holy, it simply means that God is one of a kind. There is nothing and no one like him. Therefore, there is nothing and no one that could compare or compete with him. He is irreplaceable. He is one of a kind. Nothing in any way could substitute for God. This is why the psalmist gushes over the law of God the way that he does. Because from his standpoint, God is to him what a woman is to the man who's madly in love with her. Someone who is completely one of a kind, irreplaceable. Someone to whom nothing could compare or compete with. Okay? Now... A question that may be swirling in your mind at this moment is, okay, what does this whole idea of God being holy, what does it have to do with this idea of worshiping Him? Okay, well the answer is something I already told you. It's found in my first point. Remember what I said there? Because creation is broken, the call to worship that creation shouts out, right, most likely leads you to worshiping a false God, not the one and only true God, the God who is holy, the one-of-a-kind God. See? Now, before I go on, let me address those of you watching who are investigating Christianity. You're not sure whether or not you're a believer or not, or even a spiritual person. I imagine that what I'm saying to you can come across as completely irrelevant to you, at least right now. Because after all, you're not even sure if there even is a God. And so this whole danger of worshiping a false God is something that you think you're particularly not in danger of right now. And you couldn't be more wrong, okay? And let me explain. Worship isn't an activity that you choose to do or not to do like you're going camping, okay? Worship isn't a recreation that only religious people enjoy and find satisfying. 
The Bible says worship is more like breathing. It's something that you are built and you are required to do almost involuntarily. Whether you realize it or not, you are worshiping all the time just as whether you realize it or not, you're always breathing all the time. Okay, Everyone is designed to breathe and everyone is designed to worship. Now I know, again, for those of you hearing this, investigating Christianity, that sounds like an outlandish claim, but let me see if I can convince you that this is indeed true by simply asking you this. What person, what thing, what experience that if it was taken away from you, from you or even denied from ever you obtaining would make you feel like you wouldn't want to live anymore? What person, whether it be a child, a spouse, a parent, a close friend, what thing, right, your property, your portfolio, your 401k, your estate, what experience, having kids, getting married, what person, thing, or experience that if it was taken away from you or you could never obtain ever would make you feel like your life is utterly pointless and therefore futile to where you don't even want to keep on going? That, my friends, is your functional God. That is what you worship. Okay? And this is something that you guys need to grasp. With what I'm about to say, pay close attention. Just as you were only designed to breathe one thing, so also were you designed to worship only one specific God. You know, from your lungs perspective, air is holy. Air is holy from your lungs perspective. It's one of a kind. It's irreplaceable. You cannot substitute air for anything else. There is nothing and no one that can compete to air as far as your lungs concerned. And if your lungs attempted to breathe in something else, whether it be sand, water, toxic fumes, your lungs are going to die. And guess what? So are you. So also. If you attempt to worship something other than the only true God, the holy God of the Bible, you too will die as well. And when I say die, I don't just mean physical death. I also mean every kind of death possible, including the death of your humanity. What do I mean by that? The death of your humanity. Well, let me explain. The Bible tells us that whatever you worship, you become like the thing that you worship. Whatever you are putting your whole faith in, you take on the characteristics, you take on the attributes of that object of worship. And so with that in mind, consider this quote from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Listen to what he says, quote, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, and their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch." End quote. Mm. When you worship the holy God, you become holy. When you worship something else that is not God, you become unholy, which is simply another way of saying you become inhumane. You take on the attributes that the psalmist described of himself in a moment of confessing honesty in verse 12. You become a person who is full of errors, presumptuous sins, hidden faults. In other words, you become a wicked and wretched person. 
So now it seems like we have a massive problem here. We have the problem of creation's call to worship being dysfunctional that leads us to false worship of false gods that causes misery not only to ourselves but to the people around us. And so now we have to ask ourselves, is there a way in which we can properly hear the call to worship and properly respond to it so that we can be like the holy God and therefore by being holy, being a blessing to the people around us? Well, the answer is yes. And to tell you what that is, we go to my final point, the church's call to worship. At the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist describes God as the creator. He created the heavens, he created the world, he created you and me and everyone else for the purposes of revealing of his existence and therefore his worthiness to be worshipped. Now what I just told you right now is something that any Jew, any Muslim, any Mormon, any Jehovah's Witnesses, any Hindu, depending on the variety, right, or any other pagan religion out there could affirm and say yes in agreement. But when we come to the latter half of the psalm, that is when the agreement ends because there the psalmist shifts its description of God by giving God a new title and a function that does not exist anywhere else. And that is the title of Redeemer. Redeemer. God is also the Redeemer. Now what is a Redeemer? A Redeemer is basically someone who pays the debt of someone else so that they are saved, so that they are set free from their debtors. So for example, let's say you decide to pay off your parents' mortgage on their home. Okay? You have redeemed your parents to where they're no longer enslaved by their creditors, by the bank, to where now they are set free and can fully enjoy the home without any sense of anxiety, any sense of apprehension, any sense of enslavement. You have redeemed. And guess what? The Bible says that is what God has done for those who put their faith in Jesus. God has done for us in Jesus Christ, which Allah, which Vishnu, which Brahma, which any other pagan religion that is out there today has not done, cannot do, and will never do. God came into the world as Jesus Christ, as a human being, so that he could ransom us, pay our redemption, which was nothing less than us suffering the full condemnation of God's wrath. Jesus took our place. He put us aside and stepped in our place of condemnation and he suffered the full penalty as our substitute so that when you put your faith and your trust in him as your savior, as your Lord, right, you are set free, you are redeemed. And the only reason why Jesus did this, why God sent his son Jesus to do this, why the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do this, is because God loves you. Right? God loves you. And when you understand that love, and when you grow in that love, it's going to make you want to be like the God who loves you so much. You're going to want to be holy. You're going to be like the psalmist, as he says in verse 13, then will I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now here's the thing that you need to understand. Everything that I just told you is the gospel. That is the story of the gospel. And that, my friends, is how you properly respond to the call to worship. You have to hear and believe the gospel. If you want to properly respond to the call to worship, you have to first hear and believe the gospel. Okay? 
And here's the thing. This gospel cannot be discovered in creation. I don't care how majestic the waterfall is. I don't care how breathtaking those mountain ranges are. You will never be able to look in creation and say, huh, look at that. This sunrise is telling me that God came into the world to save me from my... You're not going to see that. Okay, And you're certainly not going to discover the gospel if you worship money or marriage or sex or status or family or fame. You certainly will never discover the gospel in that way. In fact, you will never even hear the gospel in the mosque, in a Jewish temple, in a Buddhist temple, in a Hindu temple, in a sports complex, on a camping grounds, in the comforts of your own living room. The gospel is only found and therefore only proclaimed in the church. That is what makes the church so distinct. That's what marks it out from all other institutions. The reason why the church is unlike any other religion, the reason why the church is unlike any other recreation, is because it has within it the gospel. And we come to find, therefore, that the church really is the only source of hope to a broken world because the church is the only place where the gospel is heard, proclaimed, and received. And once all that happens, that's when transformation occurs that results in massive blessings to the world. Because it goes like this, when people hear the gospel and receive the gospel, what happens? There's forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when there's forgiveness of sins, there's true worship of God. And when there's true worship of God, there is becoming more like the God you worship. You become holy. And when you become holy, you live out all the attributes of what a holy person embodies. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Can you imagine how different this world would be if the people in it lived out these characteristics? Can you imagine how different you would be and the people around you would be if you and they lived out those characteristics? All of it comes from the gospel that is found in the church that results in the worship of God's people that forms them to be holy people. It's all found in the church. And so with that in mind, I ask you this question, Christian. How could you ever even toy with the idea that not gathering in the church is an option for you? How could you ever even cater to, the, to, the, to this audacity that attending church gathering together with God's people is something that you can neglect, that you can be negligible about. Right? Because hear me when I say this. You are either one of two people every single day. Okay, You're either a terrific person or you're a terrible person. And these two things are determined by the God that you worship. If you worship the God of Christ, you become like Christ. If you, be, if you worship anything outside of Christ, in other words, any false gods out there, you become like those false gods out there. And I don't know about you, I want to be someone who is terrific for the world, not terrible for the world. The world right now is pretty much in a terrified and a terrible state. I think it could use some terrific people right now. If that is your conviction too, then I implore you that once we get ready to gather together as God's people, that you would not just be ready to come back, but that you would yearn to come back so that you can once again hear and respond His call to worship. God, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that even though creation has fallen and it is broken, that nevertheless the call to worship you still rings true because you have sent the true worship leader to come out of our rebellion, to come and bring us out of our sins. You have sent us the great high priest. You have sent us Jesus Christ to lead us back to proper worship of you. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you that you are so faithful in summoning your people and calling out every Lord's Day for your people to gather, for your people to receive, for your people to hear, for your people to believe the glorious truth known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would never neglect that so that by always heeding this call, we become more like you, the God who is holy, and therefore bring blessing to the world because of your irreplaceable holiness that benefits all. Oh God, we pray that you will give us this growing conviction, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen.